Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yavamot, daf Kuftet, page 109. Pretty long daf that we have here today. Uh, we're going to start with a Mishnah that actually starts the last line of the previous daf that reads as follows. So again, we're talking about this idea about if you divorce a woman, right? What happens afterwards? Can you take her back or not take her back? And here what it says is if you divorce a woman and then remarries her, right? And he dials, you know, and, the, and he dies childless, okay? Um, that wife is actually allowed to go into Yibum uh, with his brother, but Rabbi Elazar, oh, sir, but Rabbi Elazar says, nope, it's a sore. Also, right, with somebody who divorces an orphan minor girl, right, whose brother, mother and brothers married her off and then remarries her and he dies. She also, she's allowed to enter into Yibam. But Rabbi Elazar, oh, sir, Rabbi Elazar says, no. Katana Shehisiya Abiha, okay, a minor girl whose father married her off Right. And in that case, actually, according to the Torah, that is actually a valid marriage. The Nitzgrasha. Right. And then she gets divorced while she's still a minor. So then she's like an orphan during the lifetime of her father. In other words, once that happens, he marries her off once she gets divorced. He has no right to marry her off again. And she cannot become fully married because she's still a minor. The let's say the husband remarries her while she's still a minor and dies childless. Everybody says that she's not actually allowed uh, to enter Yibam. So the Gemara wants to start with Amar Eifa, right? Eifa, who's one of the Chacham, and says, My time is a Rabbi Elazar. Why does Rabbi Elazar prohibit Yibam? Because she was forbidden to him at one time. And we've seen that consistently with Yibam, right? If there's any smell, whiff of possible Esor, right? Because once she became divorced from him, she was a sword to his brothers. So even though he's allowed to take her back, she sort of always remains a sword to her brothers. The rabbi said, So then they say, okay, if that's the case, then she also shouldn't even need to do Chalitza. And it only says Yibam. So if you could say, right? Yes, Rabbi Elazar would also even exempt her from Chalitza. It was taught in a brisa. Mishum Rabbi Elazar Amru in the name of Rabbi Elazar. Cholitza, she would do Chalitza. Ella Amar Eifa. So what Eifa says is Rabbi Elazar lo yadana my taima. Eifa basically says he goes, I can't actually explain what this reasoning is. Right? Then Abaye comes. He's going to try to explain it. That basically. It, it, it was uncertain whether the death of her husband actually uh, determined Yibum or whether it's the original marriage. Rabba comes. He also has a, a, a answer. But my point is just to say, Rabbi Elazar's opinion bothers the Amorayim. It doesn't really make sense. It's not obvious why it would be a sore. And that's what they're going to spend a lot of time trying to, to figure out here. Okay. And the fact is, we're kind of jumping over this Gemara. Because we've got yeah, another Mishnah. I, I skipped it. We just don't have time. We're going to the next Mishnah. But I, I just tried to highlight, you know, the point of the Mishnah is, what I really just want to point is, the main problem with the Mishnah is, how do we understand Rabbi Elazar? It's not so clear that his opinion really makes sense. And the Amorayim are trying to explain, how could we understand that opinion? Right. And we encourage you all to see it inside if you haven't already.
Um, okay, the next Mishnah is going to be unpleasant for people. Um, I think it's not a very pleasant Mishnah as follows. So you have two brothers who married, and we're talking married, not just betrothed, to two minor sisters. The fact that they're sisters is not the issue here, although it does become relevant for the complications of the case. The reason I say it's unpleasant is the thought of just, again, once you were talking about marriage of minors, I think we intuitively don't like that. Now we're in Yevamot, right? So, and their sisters were married to two brothers. So let's now do our regular Yibum calculations, you know, the chart making and so on. But there's a factor, the factor of these girls, and I'm calling them girls intentionally, being minors is now suddenly very salient. One of the, one of the husbands, the brothers has died. So the one who theoretically would then need to be doing yibum, right? The sister should be marrying the other brother, but he can't, but she can't because again, her sister is married to the man. So now that's it. Really, it, that that prohibited relationship cancels out the yibum requirement. And so now we're going to say again, we've got another case. Which is not, this is totally fine. I think the part that's strange here is the fact that it's a step, separate strange case, right? You have two women who are deaf mutes, right? And the halacha is that they are like minors in this matter, matter because the reason they're married is because of rabbinic law. The question of da'at and how it applies to the deaf mutes, to the cheresh or a cheresha of the time of the mission of the Gemara is is a different kind of status than I think we would stand for today. We would say a deaf mute presumably does have dots, meaning, you know, the, the, the dumb example of course is Helen Keller went to Radcliffe, right? Meaning the idea that we know that there's supreme intelligence possible in somebody who doesn't have the ability to hear or to speak is changes everything, I think, but it becomes much more complicated when you want to actually deal with it in the cases of law. Um, in any case, the point is that they get married. They have a marriage that is a, a valid by rabbinic standards. And now what happens? The same situation. Um, they, that if the brother, if they're, if the two deaf mute women are married to two brothers and one dies, right, then the other one would not be able, would not, would not have to do, um, whatever. Uh, sorry. What happens when you've got an adult and a minor? women, girls, mate ba'ala shaktana, and the husband of the the minor died, so she can't do yibum with the brother because the brother's married to her sister, right, to begin with, right? So, and therefore she can carry on with her life, right? She's free to go, so to speak. But mate ba'ala shaktana, what happens if the husband of the older woman, of the woman, full majority age woman dies. Says, you go teach that young, the younger sister that she should refuse the case of Yibub, meaning that she she has the right, she has the right and according to Rebelezer, in fact, she should she should go ahead and actually refuse him so that the marriage is then dissolved, right? And then the brother that she's theoretically married to will then be able to do Yibum with the sister. So that's a little bit of a tricky thing of Rabbi Lezer's position here. Um, okay, fine. Again, we're still in the mission. The Gemara is going to unpack a whole lot of this. Rabban Gamliel Omer, 
אם מענה, מענה, ואם לאו, תמתין עד שתגדיל ותצא הלזו משום אחות אישה. So Rav Gamliel says a little bit differently. He's got a different way to get out of it. He says, if she refuses of her own accord, meaning don't teach her to do it, if she refuses because she wants to, then that refusal is valid. But if she doesn't refuse, then just wait it out. Wait until she gets to be of majority age. And then her marriage will be valid, right? And then at that point, the widowed adult sister, right, is no longer, um, because again, kicks in. So there's a, either way you end up with, you know, taking care of the fact that the adult needs to do evil. So either she does evil because she has a full evil with the husband who had been married to her minor sister. Again, a difficult concept. Or alternatively, the sister doesn't do miyun. The, the, the girl doesn't do miyun. She grows up. She stays married to the guy. And then the yibum situation is, you know, is So Rabbi Yosha says, it gets a little more complicated. He says, when the brother married to the adult woman dies, and now the brother is married to the minor, so this this phrasing of ilo is the way we would actually say oilo, meaning woe unto him for, because of the wife, right? And also for the brother's wife. Meaning, in this case, according to Rabbi Yoshua, he's supposed to get divorced from the girl and also do chalitza with the sister, with the, with the adult who's in mourning for her husband. He can't stay married to the ktana, according to, according to this rationale of Rabbi Yoshua. He can't stay married to the ktana because she's the sister of the avama. Okay, but again, she's, he's supposed to be married to her already, but again, the marriage didn't take, right? Or not fully. So he can't do yibum because once he divorces the sister, then the Yavama becomes a, is Achut Isha. So he, he ends up like kind of, you know, stuck in both both ways around it, the way Rabbi Yoshua thinks about it. And that's why he says, Oi, woe unto both of them. Um, because again, like this rabbinic level of marriage for the Ketana ends up making a problem for the case of the Yibum. So... Okay, I'm going to leave it at that. As I say, the Gemara here unpacks a whole lot of it. We're going to talk about a little bit of what it unpacks. Um, I like the fact that we do have these three different opinions over what's, you know, what's supposed to happen here because it's clearly a complicated, messy case. And uh, the easy answer is don't marry off, but they didn't ask me. Um, yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying, that this is just a little bit less pleasant. And it's interesting what the Gemara does with this right away. Um, and it goes to... Umishari, right? They want to know about Rabbi Eliezer's sort of idea that, um, you know, we basically should tell the minor that she should refuse. And so they ask, is this really true? The Hatani Bar Kapra didn't Bar Kapra teach the following. Right? A person should always cling to three things and distance himself from three things. And so it's interesting. The first thing that it says they should cling to is chalitza. And we've seen this consistently, but this I think is the most explicitly, um, the most explicit, which is, um, you know, that uh, chalitza is preferable to Yibam, basically. Do chalitza whenever you can, right? You should always work to bring about peace and also to distance, you know, you should also uh, 
do the nullification of vows. There are three things that you should distance yourself from. You should distance yourself from refusal. And the Gemara goes on to later claim that it may be that the minor girl does refusal and then later on regrets it and realizes, oh, maybe that would have actually been a suitable partner for her. Umina Piku donotes, right? And from accepting deposits, you know, in other words, watching things for other people because then you're responsible for them. Umina Arbo notes, or from serving as a guarantor. Meun de mitzvah shani, right? And so the Gemara answer is a refusal for a mitzvah is different because the, the refusal for a mitzvah uh, is performed. It actually ends up allowing Yibum later on with another sister. So the Gemara is going to go through this and explain this a little bit more, how they get to all of these things. I'm not going to read all of it, but I think it's as interesting. Pay attention to what's in the list, you know, that they like Chalitza, they don't like Meun. And that's interesting to me because as much as we're saying that sort of like there's a lot of layers of protection. And when you read the Mishnahs itself, it seems like, all right, she really is allowed to refuse at any time she wants to refuse, right? Even the Gemara that talked about she could be in the Chuppah and refuse. Here we have Bar Kapra come and say like, yeah, but like we don't encourage refusal too much. Like there's a difference between sort of setting up the system that she can refuse whenever she wants, but that doesn't mean refusal should necessarily be encouraged. And I think there is a subtle nuanced difference there that we have to pay attention to. Yes, I think that's an important point. I want to just make a small comment on the, Towards the end of the daf, and it's a long daf. Towards the end of the daf, we have a discussion about the judges, right, who are going to adjudicate these kinds of cases. And it kind of begins in the middle of this discussion. And then we get kind of a, I'll call it like a pop-up window, right? Like there's a sidebar that's very specifically about what it means to be a judge and how a judge should relate to himself. Um, And I just want to read that you know, with you because I think that it's very powerful. The Amar Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani, Amar Rabbi Yonatan, so Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani, and you may recall that he is a name known for Agadot, for his interpretation of Agadita, um, is very often, uh, you know, strong, well done. Leolam dayan atzmo ke'ilu munachat lo yarkotav, A judge should see himself, should look at himself as if he had a sword placed between his thighs, meaning ve'gehunom p'tuchalo mitachtav. So that meaning the point is that if there's a sword between your thighs, you lean to the right, you lean to the left, you end up not answering a straight, straight, straight question, you know, in your in your in your aim, so to speak, in the way that you answer, then it's going to be you're going to get hurt. And then it says, and as if Gehenim was open beneath him. And where do we get that idea of Gehenim open beneath him? Right? It says. And then it continues. Um, so it's a verse from Shira Shirim, the poetry that we attribute to Shlomo Melech. And here it is again. It says specifically his name. Behold, it is the bed of Shlomo with 60 mighty men who are around it. Right. And they all of them are expert. They're expert with the swords they are expert in war. And each one of them is holding a sword, be, you know, ready because of the dread of the night. That's the pacha, the fear of the night. And what does that mean? The dread of Gehenna, which is like the dread of the night, meaning the idea that these mighty men of Israel from this verse are talking about 
according to Shmuel Bar Nachamani, he's saying these mighty men of Israel with their swords are akin or represent the, the judges who would sit in judgment. And they are around the bed of Shlomo. What's the bed of Shlomo? If we want to be less literal than Shira Shirim, then the bed of Shlomo becomes the house of Shlomo, which is the Beit HaMikdash that he built. Right? And the idea here then, again, is to say, to be a judge in Israel is to be very, very careful in getting exactly the precise answer that needs to be answered, the correct judgment. Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, as we go through these prekim, uh, this whole masachet, which is dealing with Yibum and chalitza, uh, you know, and uh, refusal, we really see sort of the importance of where judges are. And, you know, I understand why this appears on this page where there's sort of a notion or a suggestion, you know, do we encourage somebody to do refusal? And I think part of what the Gemara is trying to say here is, it, it, it's really acknowledging like how serious the judge's, you know, job is. And a judge really has to be careful not to sway people, not to sway to the right or to the left. Um, and, and that being a judge is, is, is nothing that can be taken lightly at all. I mean, I think it's all things we know. That's not shocking to hear, but it's beautiful to see how they actually describe it on the page itself. And the idea of it being a sword, like you get hurt actually, right? There's, there, there's, there's actual injury or damage that takes place when a judge veers uh, from their mission. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.